uh, Brian, I appreciate that you wore your Bob Ross socks. Why would I not? I love this new fad with fun socks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to look so professional. Mix it up with your socks. Why would you not? Why would you not? Look how boring my socks are. Look at those. You need some fun socks. You need, I need fun, fun socks. We just passed your birthday. Have to wait. <laughs> you really, you don't have to wait. I mean, they're not that expensive. That's true. That's true. They are socks. Although they're some of them are kind of expensive now. Yeah, you can get your dog printed yeah. on socks. Oh, wow. I thought mm-hmm. about getting that for Tracy for like, like a that. Christmas That's gift. That's not custom. It's like 40 bucks for a pair of socks. Yeah. Nah. Nah. I love her, but. <laughs> not that much. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues in public PK-12 education. Today, we're going to be discussing the final report from our Achieving Racial Equity in School Disciplinary Policies and Practices Merck study, which is now available for download on our website. Uh, This multi-year study has brought together key stakeholders from the VCU School of Education and our school divisions to explore why students of color are more likely to be suspended from school and what we can do about it. Uh, This project has special meaning to our podcast because our first ever episode was recorded in December of 2016 with members of our research and study team uh, to discuss our upcoming plan for the project. Um, And we have learned so much since then Um, And we're grateful once again to have team members assembled to reflect on the process and to offer an overview of what's included in this final report. Um, Our conversation will include a discussion about the background for this study, findings from phase one, which was quantitative, um, and phase two, which was qualitative, implications of those findings for our school divisions, um, and the key recommendations that emerged from the research. Um, To lead that discussion, we have four members from our research and study team with us today, and I'm going to introduce you to them right now. Um, First, we have Marcy Terry. Uh, Marcy is the associate principal at Manchester High School and Chesterfield County Public Schools. Uh, Prior to making a career switch over 10 years ago, she was a biochemist conducting breast cancer research. Throughout her career, she's worked with students um, across the spectrum in terms of their academic need, socioeconomic background and location, both in Virginia and Georgia. She has a passion for helping students to cultivate skills um, to enhance their social interactions and behavior in and outside of the classroom. Uh, Her dissertation, Teacher Beliefs, PBIS, and Restorative Practices, was born out of this work, and she continues her efforts as the administrator in her building overseeing PBIS, Restorative Practices, um, and the piloting of the Virginia Tiered Systems of Support. She is a member of the study team, Marcy. Welcome. Thank you. So glad to have you. It's a pleasure um, to be here. Brian Mulvey is uh, the Disciplinary Hearing Review Officer for Hanover County Public Schools. Uh, prior to his current position, he was an administrator at Chickahominy Middle School and at Patrick Henry High School. He also taught for nine years at the Academy of Virginia Randolph in Henrico County. Uh, he's currently the co-division coordinator for VTSS in Hanover and is helping to introduce alternative discipline, including restorative practices to our schools. He has a BFA, an MFA, and an EDD, all from Virginia Commonwealth University. We like that. <laughs> uh, he's a member of the study team as well. Brian, welcome. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, and then we have 
Ashley Lester. That's Ashley with two E's, in case anybody was wondering. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashley Lester is a doctoral student in the VCU School of Education studying educational psychology. Her research interests focus on educational equity. She's engaged in various topics that investigate racial disproportionality and disciplinary practices, exploring demographic change in local school systems, and considering how these two things overlap. Um, As an emerging educational psychologist, she often brings both a social context and motivational lens to understanding these larger questions of equity, access, and motivation in our school and out-of-school education systems. She received her Bachelor of Science in Education with a concentration in youth and social innovation from the University of Virginia. That's a super cool sounding degree. Um, (laughs) She's a member of our research team. um, And Ashley is also the the person who was working on phase one and phase two throughout this study. So she's been um, uh, kind of the backbone of the study in a lot of ways. Ashley. Welcome. Thanks. Glad I'm to have excited. You um, and my name is David Knapp. I'm the Assistant Director of Research and Evaluation for Merck. Um, I'm also a co-principal investigator on this project and was primarily supporting the qualitative phase of the research. Um, I also want to be sure to mention our two faculty principal investigators on this study who have been so instrumental in leading this effort. Uh, Genevieve Siegel-Holly is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership in the VCU School of Education. Her research focuses on race, stratification, and inequality in American schools, uh, regional district and school-level policies to promote diversity and reduce segregation, and the relationship between school and housing segregation, and she led the quantitative phase of this research. Um, also, we had Ade Tafera, uh, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Foundations of Education, and her research focuses on urban schooling, educational policy and politics, race and disability intersectionality, um, knowledge mobilization, and bridging research policy and practice. And she led the qualitative phase of this study. Um, for a full list of our research and study team members, please visit our website for this project um, at merck.soe.vcu.edu/projects. I'm going to provide some quick background on the study, and then we're going to get into our discussion questions about what the findings are and what they mean. Um, So this study has been a long time coming. (laughs) So it was commissioned by our Policy and Planning Council in the fall of 2015. Um, Our research and study teams were identified in the spring of 2016. The research approach was approved in the fall of 2016. There are two phases to the study that we're going to describe in greater detail today. Phase one was quantitative. Ashley's going to give going to give us some of the overview um, and highlights of that phase. Phase two was qualitative, which I'll be giving an overview of. There's also two literature briefs that have come out of this study so far. Uh, we have our Why Do Racial Disparities in School Discipline Exist? The Role of Policies, Processes, People, and Places. Um, this brief provides some critical context about what the research says about the contributing factors to racial disparities and exclusionary discipline. Um, We also have a review of disciplinary interventions in K-12 public education. Um, This uh, brief discusses historical discipline models like corporal punishment and zero tolerance, as well as alternative models that are emerging now um, that are intended to reduce exclusionary discipline and shrink racial gaps. That includes positive behavioral interventions and supports. We're going to call that PBIS for the rest of this conversation because it's too long to say otherwise. (laughs) Um, And the Virginia Tiered Systems of Support, which is the um, the Virginia version of this. Um, It's VTSS for short. We have culturally responsive PBIS, restorative practices, and trauma-informed care um, discussed in that brief. Uh, And for each model, we discuss the theory of action as well as the evidence of effectiveness from the literature. Both of those are available in the reports section of the website. So that gives some good background to the study in case you're interested. Okay. So, Brian, that's the background for this study. Sure. Talk about what our approach has been in study team meetings to guide this research and make sense of the data as we've been getting it. 
Yeah, so I'd like to think what brought us together in the first place was a statistic that 23% of the black students in our region, uh, well, excuse me, our population is made up of 23% uh, black students, whereas the discipline uh, for out-of-school suspensions and expulsions is between 50 and 58%. I can tell you from my own uh, background, I was actually, when this study started, I was still a school administrator, and I was actually working with one of the other Merck studies uh, for professional development for racially diverse schools. Um, when I got this job, you guys were a year or two into it, and uh, Jesse Seneschal approached me and asked if I could, if I'd be interested in, in joining you guys. Uh, and I can tell you I absolutely was. For me, getting a better understanding of exactly what was going on, what was driving the disproportionality, what was uh, the appropriate uses and best uses of alternative discipline, what was working, what could work, and then connecting with folks in the region that are doing that work. Uh, for me, it was a job that was brand new to me. Mm. Understanding what people were finding uh, as, as impactful was really important for my understanding. When I joined the team, uh, what was rather great, we were part of the phase two at that point, and so we were getting together and we were listening. Mm. We were hearing about and from uh, the, the recordings uh, from the school research, um, the interviews that you guys were doing, and we're able to just sit back and listen and digest and really start to pull sort of some key findings and just have some round table discussions about, so, so what are we hearing and what does this mean and, and what, is it, what is the impact uh, for our schools and for our region? Can you talk a little bit more about your decision to um, take part in the study teams? Because you're in a, involved in a couple of them for Merck, like you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, people in our school divisions are so busy. Why, why do you feel like it's important? Why were you compelled to, to join the team? So there's multiple reasons for me. Uh, having finished a doctorate at VCU a few years ago, five now actually, uh, I miss the research. I miss being a part of that. I also will tell you I miss school in general. And so being a part of these dialogues on not only a local but a regional level with folks that knew what they were doing. For me, I was very novice. You know, I, I was new to the discipline realm in terms of overseeing it from the county. Uh, I was just happy to be a part of something that I thought could have a specific and a, also a broad application uh, that could make some differences with our school. And I think that could happen with both of the studies. With this one, it's now directly applicable to the way I do business mm -hmm. and the way I think we can all be doing business. So I think for me, having, again, not only the connection, but a better understanding of what works mm -hmm. and what the recommendations that come out of this study, I think, again, are directly applicable to not just me and my job, but to the region mm -hmm. as a whole, if yeah. not more broadly than that. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we put out a, a research report from one of these studies, we definitely wanted to have a positive impact on people's practices in the school divisions. We also hope that if somebody's participating in one of our study teams, it's also great professional development for mm -hmm. them sure. um, and that it informs your practice along the way. Um, do you feel like that's been the case? You know, absolutely. If, if you actually take the time to read through the research, to understand not only the conclusions, but the recommendations. You guys, we'll get into this later, but have done a real nice job of laying out case studies that if we chose to use them for professional development, you can use them entirely or you can use them individually. There's some great targeted questions in there. Absolutely challenges my thinking. And, and being in a room with folks that don't necessarily think alike, they're all having to address the same material, 
absolutely will broaden your horizons and, and your perspective on how to look at things. Yeah, absolutely. And I could say that I'm, I'm Ashley and I are on the research team for this and our interpretation of the findings. I think there's only so far that we can go until we have conversations with, with Marcy and Brian and people from our school divisions that are serving on these study teams. So we're so grateful for you being a part of it because it gives us such a more nuanced perspective on what this really means. Sure. Um, and speaking of findings, we have a lot of findings <laughs> in this report. Um, Ashley, you've been really involved with the quantitative phase of this. Give us an overview of the, the quantitative findings um, from phase one. What was our methodology, first of all? And then what did we learn? Yeah, definitely. So I, like David said, I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights. Um, so basically in phase one, we were kind of seeking to understand the relationship between racial disproportionality and discipline and then school district and community level composition. Um, so we got a restricted use discipline data set from the Virginia Department of Education, and then we matched that with publicly available student demographics. Um, and so we looked at a seven-year time period, but ma the majority of our work was focused on the 2016 year. Um, and so had a bunch of data there and then combined that with a survey of school leaders from the Merck region. Um, and that survey was really seeking to understand um, leaders' perspectives on disproportionality as well as kind of what were the current efforts happening in the schools to address it, what type of discipline interventions were being used, um, and what was the level of implementation of those interventions. So basically, we looked at a variety of different um, disproportionality measures. The two that I'll hit on today, so just to give us a little background, one of them um, is a measure of absolute risk, which basically is just saying that this is the percentage of a certain student group who has received an out-of-school suspension. Um, and the other one is a discipline gap, which is just the difference in the absolute risk between two different student groups. So for us, um, we saw the most stark disparities between black students and white students. And so our discipline gap was mainly looking at the difference in those two groups of students. So then we took those measures and conducted some statistical analysis to see if there was any relationships um, that emerged from our data between those composition variables and the discipline variables. One of the major findings that we learned is that black students are consistently receiving far more out-of-school suspensions than their peers across the entire Merck region. Um, so a specific example of this, in 2016, 20% of black students received out-of-school suspension compared to just 5% of white students. So that's a pretty stark difference. We found that the disproportionate discipline was more severe in secondary schools um, than in elementary schools. Um, as black students were about three times as likely to be suspended in secondary schools. And this gap in discipline between black and white students was present across all areas. Um, Genevieve siegel Holly, who David mentioned, kind of headed up the quantitative section of this study, created some really incredible maps that you can see these rates of disproportionality just kind of mapped across our region. Um, and so what you can see on those maps, which are included in the full report, is that there is evidence of disproportionality across the whole region, but it's most stark in these kind of higher poverty communities. And so this trend kind of followed when we were looking at school poverty specifically. And so we found significant differences in the suspension of black students in the lowest and the highest poverty schools. So 9% um, of black students in the lowest poverty schools were being suspended out of school compared to 21% of students in the highest poverty schools. So there's definitely some significant relationship going on between disproportionate use of discipline um, and school poverty as well as community level poverty. And then another piece that we kind of dug into is thinking about segregation in our schools. Um, Richmond historically has been a pretty segregated um, area for schools. And so 
we defined schools as intensely racially segregated if there were 10% or fewer white students in the school. Um, and so we found that black students were more likely to be suspended that, at schools that were intensely racially, racially segregated than um, schools that weren't. So we're seeing these trends in this relationship between poverty, community-level poverty, school-level poverty, as well as the segregation of the school. And so then we kind of um, dug into what does this look like in subjective discipline uses. And so these codes that are more subjective in nature, in Virginia, these typically are um, being disciplined for defiance or disruption or disorderly conduct. Um, this is typically where we see our um, most stark disproportionality happening. Um, and these are concerning because these are the codes that are kind of left up to the interpretation of the educator. And so there might be some more room for implicit bias to play in here. So across our region, we saw that 6% of black students were suspended for these subjective infractions in comparison to 1% of white students and 2% of Latinx students. So there's a pretty stark contrast there. And then when we dug into that data a little bit more, we saw the same trends with segregation, with school segregation and poverty playing here. So then I'll give you guys a quick update on what we found in our survey. So generally, the majority of our schools are using PBIS, so they are having some type of discipline model in play. And what we found most fascinating is that despite this evidence of disproportionality that we found in these schools, um, our, one of the questions on our survey was asking school leaders, what do you believe is the most, like the biggest impediment to addressing racial disproportionality in your schools? And we were surprised that almost 40% of our survey respondents believe that this proportionality wasn't an issue at their school. So I will say the majority of respondents cited major impediments like implicit bias or a lack of resources or a lack of training. But we were kind of struck by this 40 percent of school of the sample of school leaders not thinking that disproportionality was an issue. So I would say kind of our like biggest takeaway from the quantitative findings is that racial disproportionality and discipline is an issue that's pretty much facing the majority of our schools and supports more supports and training are needed for it. And I think uh, one of the key reasons why Merck exists as a partnership is for us to be able to look at different phenomena across contexts because our school divisions are so different. There's a lot of ways that we mm -hmm. overlap between the seven school divisions, but there, there are also differences as well just in terms of like the communities that they serve and the, the demographics of the, the students at the schools. So what, what's your biggest takeaway in terms of the role that context plays in discipline outcomes, Ashley? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think we can kind of walk away saying that this is an issue that most schools need to address. But for us, it was thinking more so about where can we target these types of resources? So is it those high poverty schools where black students are being um, disciplined at so much higher of a rate? Is it those intensely segregated schools? So thinking about what are the kind of all around supports that we can provide and are there more targeted supports that we can provide to the schools that are kind of grappling with this more on a daily basis? Yeah. Um, Marcy, what do you see as the main takeaways from those quantitative findings as they relate to your work in your division, Chesterfield? Well, I think the quantitative data revealed a lot of takeaways um, that calls for reflection and, and perhaps some um, modification of practice at the school level. I think um, one of the takeaways that was most glaring to me that Ashley mentioned was obviously that black students at the secondary level are more likely to receive out-of-school suspension as opposed to those at the elementary level. And so as a secondary level administrator, that 
was very uh, a very important point to me because I think at the secondary level we tend not to focus on social emotional learning or take into account trauma informed care um, because teachers at the high school level they are very content driven. Sometimes they feel as though it's not important to teach behaviors to students. Um, they assume that students already know how to behave, how to appropriately advocate for themselves uh, when communicating with adults in the building. And so I think um, that data point just further validates that um, alternative approaches and programs such as PBIS and VTSS have a place at the secondary level. So I think that that was the first thing that definitely stood out to me. Uh, to go along with that, I think another point um, that Ashley made was that um, some of the uh, research showed that administrators didn't believe that there was a disproportionality issue. And so for me, that calls into question, how is data being shared? Um, how is it being analyzed? How is it being reviewed? Are administrators truly being reflective um, practitioners and looking at that data, understanding what it means, and then making data-informed decisions um, as they look to support their students and, and faculty and community um, and then community comes um, into play as well, looking at some of the uh, amazing graphs that were um, created and, and the maps. Specifically for, uh, for Chesterfield, some of the red, the schools that were labeled as being red are kind of on those border areas, for example, between Chesterfield and Richmond, and then on the southern end of the county between Chesterfield and Petersburg. And so uh, we are aware that um, due to students kind of and their families kind of coming out of the city into the county and then coming from Petersburg into Chesterfield, that's where we're going to see those areas of high poverty. I think from an administrative standpoint, we know that a lot of our teachers are veteran teachers. They've been in our schools for a long time. And so it's our job to support them in understanding that our student demographic is changing mm -hmm. and that those high schools 10 years ago don't look the way that they look today and helping them to understand that the way that they approach supporting students both instructionally and socially and behaviorally also has to to change as well. Along with that, because the student demographic is changing, it doesn't necessarily mean that the immediate neighborhood around the school is changing. And so not only do we have to work to support teachers in understanding those changes, but also the community at large so that we can pull in those additional resources to support students um, and kind of create wraparound services, if, if you will. So I think those are some important takeaways from the quantitative data. Yeah. And Marcy, I think we um, we so often talk about achievement gaps in in terms of academic outcomes. Definitely. Um, I think increasingly people are talking about them in terms of opportunity gaps because yes. a lot of that might be that students are um, in school less perhaps yes. because they're being suspended more. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit more about what you've seen from your from your work mm -hmm. in terms of the connection between student discipline and their academic outcomes? I think there's a definite correlation. Uh, we know that anytime students are suspended from school, it's going to affect our chronic absenteeism and it's going to affect the amount of time that they are exposed to direct instruction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you have those correlations, we know that that is going to unfortunately um, or can unfortunately 
result in students not being able to um, perform their best in the classroom and on those standardized tests when you talk about our standards of accreditation um, and and how they've changed here in, in the state of Virginia here recently. And so going back to how data is shared with teachers constantly having to drive home those correlations, I think, is is very much important. I don't know that that's a direct relationship that we really um, support teachers throughout the region in, in understanding and, and driving home. Sure. Yeah. And that um, that theme of sharing data and health mm-hmm. that is comes up a lot. Yes. Uh, report, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in the uh, the qualitative section. Uh, Brian, what are your impressions of those phase one findings? So I'll, I'll share with you, as I read them, I started to visualize myself in the different roles I've served as an educator, as, as a teacher, uh, as an administrator at both a middle school and a high school, and then in my current role. And you start to be reflective. And I think that's some of the danger, trouble, worry here with this is if I'm being reflective, then I have to kind of take an honest measure of myself. Is there implicit bias in play? You know, if I'm just judging myself, I also wanted to see is in each of those roles, did I have any awareness of this whatsoever? Mm -hmm. And so when we start talking about data and transparency of data, I think these are tough conversations to have, but I don't, I I can't tell you how many I've had in those other roles (laughs) where we took an honest look at disproportionality, analyzed it, talked about our role in it as a classroom teacher, as an administrator, as somebody that oversees administrators, and thought about, is there a better way? And I'm, am I part of the problem? So again, I, like I started to think about, okay, so as a teacher, was I aware of this? I, I think I can honestly say no in terms of having a direct conversation about disproportionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 20 years ago now, but still. Uh, it, as an administrator, again, we, we had conversations, though I don't know if we had the language to express it properly. Uh, and in my current role, I will tell you about 60% of our schools right now are using VTSS. And While they are using it, we're using uh, a data collection program called SWISS. Within that, you can actually run reports that are already calculated for risk ratios to look directly at disproportionality within your school. I can tell you I do data trainings with my school coaches, and I'm having them look at exactly that thing. So I am having them sit with their admin and then as a team and say, I want you to tell me the next time we meet how disproportionate your school is. I want you to come back and tell me that there's, you know, three times more likely, two and a half more times likely, four, whatever it is. I want you to know that. And I want you to present that to your admin. And then I want you to have an honest conversation about, so what does that mean for us? Mm -hmm. So that we can then come back to the table and talk about, so what are some strategies that could be applied here? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to think that I wasn't part of the problem for, you know, my my previous years in education, but it's hard to say that I wasn't, you know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't educated to the point that I am now. I, I wasn't at the same level of awareness. Mm -hmm. So I I can appreciate the opportunity to be reflective, and I hope that one of the takeaways for other folks is is they're able to do the same, both individually and collectively. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Part of the conceptual framework for this study is a book called Despite the Best Intentions, and Mm -hmm. everything you were just talking about makes me think about that, that these these kinds of disparities can occur even in schools with really well-intentioned educators. And um, I'm going to go through the qualitative findings in, in just a second, but one of the things that I think came up over and over again is that our our teachers and educators really wrestle with this issue, mm-hmm. right? Like they're, I, I think they're really thinking about it. And in terms of sharing data, it's just helpful to have a common point of reference, right? So it's sort of like this common understanding of like, here's what it is. There's no ambiguity. Here's how we know this looks at, um, like at our particular schools that we can kind of build off of that and be solution focused from there. Well, that statistic that 40% of the people don't 
believe it's a problem or unaware of it just tells me that there isn't a transparency in data, that this mm -hmm. is not an open subject at faculty meetings. And I got to tell you, it has me visualizing. So what should that look like? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I offer that to my admin so that they can competently go back and have that conversation mm -hmm. that they can also be that counselor afterwards for those folks that just aren't ready to have it. Uh, but I think in my own role, I have to make sure we're, we're increasing the capacity in others to have these conversations yeah. uh, and come to some logical conclusions that are applicable to their environments. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they're, they're hard conversations to have, and that's actually a really good segue into our phase two findings. Um, I'm going to give an overview of what those findings were in our methodology, and then we're going to get some, some reaction from folks to it. So, um, so phase two of our study was qualitative. We did uh, a multiple case study of three schools in the Merck region. Um, so we intentionally selected three schools to represent varying levels of diversity in their student body. So we had a rural, predominantly white high school. We had an urban, predominantly black and Latinx middle school. And then we had a suburban mixed race high school that were selected. Um, also, all the schools that were selected reported alternative approaches to discipline. Most commonly, they reported using PBIS. We got input from our school division leaders about um, which schools to select for this study. So we wanted to make sure that they were involved at every step of the way. Um, in each school, we recruited teachers, administrators, and other educators to share about their perceptions of how um, discipline was implemented at their schools, as well as if they perceived any issues of racial disproportionality, so similar to what we asked about on the survey. Um, we shadowed participating educators for approximately half of their school day to get an idea about what their daily practices were like, especially how they typically handled discipline during the school day. Um, and then we would conduct interviews with them after school. We also conducted focus groups with students because you've got to have student voice whenever you're doing this kind of research to understand how they navigated the discipline program in their schools and what they thought about any um, perceived racial disparities and how students got in trouble in their schools and how, um, how adults reacted to it. So in total, we had 50 participants across the three sites. There was 26 educators and 24 students. The full breakdown of our participant profile and our method is outlined in greater detail in the report in case you're just really into the method, um, <laughs> which we definitely are. Um, so we think that having this kind of prolonged engagement with our participants and then verifying our findings with members from our um, from our study team uh, to check our interpretation helped enhance the validity of the findings. It's really important that we had some checks along the way. So we collected this large amount of rich qualitative data. Um, so we took those conversations, we analyzed them for themes. There were six overall findings that I'm going to share, um, just to give a quick overview of what those are. But first, I want to start with a quote that we heard from one of our teachers. This is a verbatim quote. One teacher said, I feel like saying, Get in here and see what I see or all of us see every day. We're not asking the right question. Yes, there's a disparity, but let's really look at it in terms of how we can help the children. Um, and I want to start there because this is a critical look at the discipline practices in these schools. Um, but we also want to communicate the nuanced ways that our educators are navigating this issue every day and then offer actual practical recommendations from the findings. Um, one way that we do that in the, the report is that we have individual case studies of um, teachers and other educators in these schools to talk about how they're navigating this issue in their daily work and how that's influenced by their context. And then there's some discussion questions that are associated with those. So if you're using this for professional development, you could definitely do it that way. Um, so our first finding, there was a lack of clearly communicated and adopted discipline policy. This is kind of going to what Brian was just talking about. So it seemed like there was a really clear awareness by administration about the purpose and implementation of discipline models. It wasn't always clear from the teachers and other educators at the school. Sometimes um, this led to an apparent lack of buy-in from the faculty, it seemed. 
Um, it also seemed to lead to some perceptions that teachers, or that students who were referred to the office um, who didn't receive a suspension or other consequence were being granted leniency, which seemed to communicate that um, there were some misconceptions about um, maybe what the purpose of the program was, or maybe it wasn't really communicated in a, um, in a very strong way, potentially. It also included some misconceptions that students with disabilities were particularly granted leniency um, when it came to school discipline, but there's been reports in the Richmond region that suggest that the opposite is actually true. So again, it's important to share the data for that. Um, this emphasizes the importance of making it clear at the onset, whenever these programs are getting implemented in a school, what the theory of change is for the discipline program, um, and particularly emphasizing what its focus is on reducing any kind of racial gaps that exist. We've got to talk from the, about this from a racial lens. The second finding, we found that our educators had pretty mixed reviews of the professional development that they received in their schools. They indicated that their schools sometimes implemented PD related to issues of cultural diversity um, or school discipline. It was a pretty common claim that these PD sessions weren't always very well received by the faculty. So Brian, this is what you were just talking about, that these are really hard conversations to have. Um, it seems like this contributed to some of the reported inconsistency in how teachers um, administered the discipline program at their schools. Um, our second research brief from this study outlines some um, ways to implement professional development so that we can have these conversations and navigate them in a way that's supported by research. Like These are some of the things that are shown to be more effective. We also have a separate Merck study that's exclusively focused on how to give professional development related to cultural diversity. Brian's on that study team as well. Um, the third finding, there was considerable variability in how teachers navigated discipline in their classrooms. In many cases, we observed teachers engaging in discipline practice that were clearly intended to match the needs and personalities of the students they were working with. They were focusing on relationships. Uh, they were they communicated how they wanted to understand students' backgrounds. They weren't overreacting to minor infractions that happened in their classroom. Um, we rarely observed any teachers writing referrals for students to go to the office. Um, and for the most part, students and teachers seemed to get along really well in their classrooms. Um, conversely, so on the other side of that, we also heard concerns from faculty that their colleagues didn't always implement the discipline program very consistently, which sometimes would create challenges that they had to encounter when they needed to enforce a rule. So things like dress code, hats, hoods, et cetera, if they felt like it wasn't being consistently enforced, then it ended up being kind of problematic for them. And then similarly, students frequently expressed concerns about how they felt like the expectations for their behavior shifted throughout the day, right? So like who I'm supposed to be in first period is different than who I'm supposed to be in third period. And I think the takeaway here, and we'll talk about this more in the recommendation section, but it's not that there needs to be strict fidelity when it comes to discipline practices in a school, but there does perhaps need to be some more conversation at the school level about how to appropriately balance a consistent discipline program while also allowing teachers to have the autonomy that they need to handle discipline in-house in their classroom, and that should vary by context. Fourth finding, we found that there was a lack of um, focus on race and culture in the disciplinary policies and practices, at least the way that they were communicated, it seemed. Um, on the survey that Ashley had referenced, only 9% of school leaders responding to the survey said that their PD and school discipline had an exclusive focus on racial disproportionality, but we found evidence of racial disproportionality throughout the region. Um, Similarly, not all administrators indicated on the survey that they perceived it to be an issue at their school, even when the suspension data suggested that this was actually the case. Um, students across the schools often describe different perceptions of treatment based on race, and this suggested that it might be necessary to have more of a focus on issues of race and culture when we're communicating about the purposes of a school discipline model because these things are um, top of the mind for a lot of people in schools. 
Um, our fifth finding, the perceptions of disproportionality by our educators tended to be influenced um, by the availability of evidence, so data, like we were just talking about, as well as the demographic composition of the student body. So educators tended to recognize that there was a broader concern about racial gaps and exclusionary discipline. They were much less likely to express that this was an issue at their schools. Um, it's worth mentioning, though, that our three case study schools, a black student was at least twice as likely as any other student to be suspended at the school. Those who recognized the issue were typically administrators. They tended to cite discipline data at their schools as saying, like, this is the foundational reason why I know that this is something we need to do. Um, it offered concrete evidence of the existence of disproportionality and the need to do something about it. Um, educators also tended to refer to the demographic composition of the student body as indicating whether or not there could be racial disproportionality. So, for example, if there seemed to not be enough of a meaningful comparison group of students to be able to draw references. Let me give a quick breakdown about what the discipline outcomes were for our case study schools. So our predominantly white and mixed race schools, approximately 15% of the black students in the schools were suspended. At our predominantly black school, approximately 55% of the black students in the school were suspended. So that's of the black students in the school, what percentage were suspended. Um, so these numbers suggest that black students can still have a like, higher likelihood of receiving a suspension, even in a predominantly black school where the comparison isn't against the overall racial composition of the student body. And in our two schools with smaller percentage of uh, black students, they still accounted for a larger share of the suspensions at the school than their share of the population. So this also indicates disproportionate discipline outcomes for black students. So it can happen across different contexts. Um, it seems important that we, we have to share discipline data broken down by racial group with faculty, um, as well as evidence that disproportionality can exist even at less diverse schools. Um, and then finally, our sixth finding, we found that people had different attributions for racial disproportionality and discipline, um, that they were external and internal to the control of the school. So first, what do we mean by attribution? So these are explanations for why this exists, right? So when people are talking about this issue, they attribute it to X. So why do I think this exists? External attributions included things like student socioeconomic status and the perceived expectations for their parents at home. They also perceived that student behavior itself was the main driver of disproportionality sometimes or that repeat offending students were skewing the data. Um, it's worth noting that our findings in phase one that Ashley was talking about often controlled for repeat offending students and that we still found persistent disproportionality in the region even after controlling for that. Also, research shows that persistently attributing student behavior to external factors like poverty or perceived expectations at home can potentially contribute to deficit thinking and lowered expectations for student behavior at the school level. So um, it's important to focus on those internal attributions, which people also offered. So these are things that are controllable at the school level. That includes things like needing to reduce cultural mismatch between teachers and students. So training, recruiting, hiring, um, and retaining teachers of color is important. And to address any potential role that implicit bias might play in forms of professional development, which we've talked about um, throughout the report and throughout this conversation. It's important to note that hiring a diverse staff is a, definitely an important step. The research supports that. But there's also a need for professional development on implicit bias. It still needs to exist, right? Um, this is based on feedback that we've received from school divisions, but it's also supported by the literature. So it emphasizes the importance of checking these findings with our study team. We want to make sure that these are verified at the school level. Um, I definitely encourage you to read through the full qualitative findings. The primary reason for that is because it includes lots of participant voice, right? So me mm -hmm. describing it doesn't do it nearly justice. Hearing directly from our educators and students is the most important way to understand what their experiences were like. And then the individual case studies that are included in that section 
really help illustrate how um, our educators navigate this issue across different school contexts. So that's a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, let's start with yeah. you. What do you see as the main takeaways from the qualitative findings as they relate to your work in Hanover? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you, in reading through that, I'm not overly surprised about any of it. Uh, it's conversations that we've had and are having uh, and you're still trying to figure out how to improve upon. So it's good. It's good that that's out there and that we're having that dialogue. If I was boiling it down to a single word, as difficult as that is, for me, it's still communication. It, it's making sure that we're doing the things that people want and need and doing it well, making sure that they have availability to that data and understand what they're looking at and how it's applicable to what they're doing. I will tell you just as an example, I was working with a school recently, a VTSS school, and we, we were having conversations about the decodes, which we all know are the most subjective and also the most widely used. Mm -hmm. uh, they are also the most disparate in how they're applied, whether it's an ISS or a conversation or 10 days OSS for the exact mm -hmm. same code mm -hmm. within counties and even within buildings. Different administrators will apply it entirely differently. So I think we have to continue to have that conversation. Uh, so I'm working with this, this school. We're talking some struggles they were having at the time with the decodes. And they were like, you know what? We've had this conversation with the staff. We defined this. We thought we were clear where we were. And I said, well, when did we have that conversation? You know, like four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. How much of the staff has turned over since then? Well, about 30%. Mm -hmm. We're also having an issue with uh, schools, sometime, in this particular school's case, with simply understanding, and it, it's noted in here, the referral process. So as a teacher, when do I turn it in? What will be done with it? Will I be allowed to understand what happened? Who can understand? Can the other teachers that, that work with this kid understand? And what we were finding is there was a huge breakdown there. Well, once again, it's because so many people, both on the teaching side and the administrative side, had turned over that we just take for granted that, yeah, we did this PD, but my goodness, it was three years ago. Yeah. So there's a the constant re-education that needs to happen where we just reinforce what our policies and what our procedures are so that we have a good understanding. But the communication piece there, and, and it, I think it reads loud and clear here, that I think teachers are frustrated sometimes with a lack of communication from admin, with mm -hmm. a lack of understanding about why mm -hmm. and why can I know. And I also think at times, at least this is me reading under the lines, there might be a lack of trust at times. Mm -hmm. And I know I've personally felt it before where I disagree, but I don't trust you enough to be willing to have that conversation with why mm -hmm. and not believe it's going to be used against me. Mm -hmm. And Though I don't see that a lot now, I, I've seen it before. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to make sure that there's that transparent communication, there's that trust between coworkers, uh, between subordinate and, and boss, that they can have an honest conversation about <coughs> what's lacking, what I need, why this happened, so we can talk about what needs to, to happen moving forward. You know, I, I wrote down a couple of things that kind of stood out to me, mm -hmm. just lack of clarity again with SPED as well. Mm -hmm. I, I One of the pull-aways uh, or the takeaways from this study that – People think, and I think it was quoted in there, that if a student has ED, he's got a pass to do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's an emotional uh, disturbance with the, the student, that they can just about get away with anything because there's a lack in the manifestation process, a lack of understanding in the manifestation process. And, and I think that's true. And again, I think I see that. Mm -hmm. I think I see where, where some folks are reluctant to write kids up or are reluctant to address it because they think it's going to be thrown out. They think the kid will be back the next day. There's so much more that can be done to explore What's the best educational setting for that kid? What accommodations can we put in place for the classroom, for the student, to, to make it a better learning environment? But that, again, it's, just, it's still a communication issue. Mm -hmm. still, we have to make sure people understand that. The better PD, the inconsistency, not in the, 
across schools, but across classrooms, I think is a big issue. Again, as a guy that has worked in several different schools now, I, I can see that there are some teachers that are by the book rule enforcers, and there are some teachers that are a little bit less so. Same with administrators, for that matter. Same with just about anybody on any level. It's just what is my level of tolerance and what's my level of you know feelings of equity and, and connectedness to maybe a particular individual that, that there's huge variations there. Also, I just made a quick note that, you know, there's no research to support that students of color misbehave more than their white peers, but there is absolutely research that shows that we discipline students differently Hmm. for the exact same behaviors. Hmm. And so taking a good, strong look at that, what that looks like in the context of my environment or even in my classroom, I I think is sort of loud and clear in that that phase two. Yeah. And Brian, you you mentioned efforts in your school division to um, start sharing this data more and more Mm -hmm. with faculty using that Swiss system. Sure. What do you see as some of the the barriers to sharing and communicating about data at at the school level when it comes to discipline? Well, so I think there's a couple. I think some people are worried to face it head on. Mm-hmm. And then again, it, it's very reflective that way. They're maybe worried that it gets out and that they're being judged in some way. And I will tell you, the Swiss, allows, Swiss system allows us to drill down to that teacher or that period. I can look at any individual kid and say, it only looks like he's being written up in second period mm-hmm. or a collection of kids, and I can see that. And so I've challenged my administrators to actually start having those conversations, that if we see a kid that's got 10 referrals and nine of them are for the same teacher, the same period, then Part of our observational process needs to be in that class to start talking about, so where's the disconnect? Why does this continue to happen? And then maybe connecting that teacher with additional resources, like some of the other classes where this kid is with the same mix of students, but is not having the same uh, referrals uh, repeatedly. I think, too, you know, one, we have to make sure that we're collecting the data, that we're willing to share it, that there's a forum for it, that there's also a forum for discussion and reflection. So we have to really be willing to dedicate time to, to every step of the process. I don't know that that's happened yet, but I, I do think that we're moving in that direction. Yeah. Marcy, what are your reactions to these findings as they relate to your work in Chesterfield as an administrator? Wow. Um, I have a lot of a lot of takeaways. I agree with everything that, that Brian said and definitely it boiling down to communication. I also think it boils down to community and creating a sense of community at all levels in terms of teachers working to create a sense of classroom community, administrators working to create a sense of community amongst their, their faculty. And I think um, if those structures were put in place, going back to what Brian was saying, I think the data conversation would be easier to have with faculty. We use Swiss as well. And in presenting the data, we try to present it in, in a balanced fashion where we present some celebrations, but we also present um, some data points that aren't as comfortable to to digest because uh, what we see a lot of times is that the immediate response is to take it personal. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, this is what the data says, how can we work together as a team, as a faculty, to to move the data forward in a more positive direction. So I think that that's definitely a challenge that I have that I have experienced and observed as an administrator when it comes to that piece. Something else that you mentioned was the balance between teacher autonomy with discipline practices. I think a lot of teachers define teacher autonomy very differently. I think some teachers feel like um, they have great classroom management skills and um, they're building relationships with their students. They are building a sense of classroom community, whether it's through um, just through 
frequent conversation with students if they're using restorative practices and proactive circles to do so. Some teachers may define it more so as when I uh, submit a referral, I expect there to be, uh, you know, a consequence, whether that be out of school suspension or the student being removed from the classroom, because in that moment, I felt my authority being challenged. So I think that's another piece that needs to be addressed. I think another overall theme that that came out that emerged from those findings was professional development and, and what that looks like. As an administrator, um, and, and Brian mentioned this as well, when you're trying to have conversation about Im- implicit bias, not everyone's ready to receive that or to do that work. And I know that uh, Merck has done some work and presented some findings that talk about using culturally responsive teaching as a way to kind of ease those conversations but still have those conversations with teachers to help to inform their approach to, to instruction. I think I would be very interested in seeing what that work looks like going forward because I think that's an an objective way to address something that can feel very subjective to teachers, but to help um, move forward in terms of how we how we approach discipline within our schools. So a lot of great takeaways from the qualitative findings as well. So you you, you mentioned something a second ago that that spurred something in yeah. my thinking that the celebration piece. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to sound like a Swiss commercial right now. <laughs> I will tell you one of the things that I've had my VTSS schools do that, mm-hmm. I, that I've been working with, and we look at data every – we do coaches clinics where we meet every couple of months, and we always touch on data. And one of the things I want to make sure schools are able to do is not only access it but understand how to present it, right? Uh, how to adequately re- reflect on what they are looking at and mm-hmm. communicate that. And just uh, – I'm going to use somewhat arbitrary numbers here, but I'll, I'll find a school that with kids with two or more referrals, maybe mm-hmm. that – is about 20% of the kids. Mm-hmm. Kids with, uh, say, up to two referrals is 15% of the kids. And then kids with less than two will be, uh, you know, the remainder of that, and 5%. And they always look at the, these big numbers. Mm-hmm. And I keep pushing on my schools to look at the data in reverse. Exactly. I'm like, I really want you to present this backwards. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. What do you mean? I was like, mm-hmm. well, what I mean is what this is saying that, yes, about 20% of your kids have had two or more referrals, and of those, maybe 15% have had more than that. Mm-hmm. But what that means is, let's say 80% or whatever the remainder ends up being, have had none. Or if they've had less than two, that just means whatever you have put in place right. to address the situation has worked. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we also use that Swiss data for is, so I'll bring folks together and, and I'll just ask them to write things that they know to be true but don't have the data to back it up. Mm. It's like, just just tell me what you know about your school. And we'll throw right. things out there like, these ninth graders are the worst class we've ever had. <laughs> or I understand that on <laughs> this particular hallway, there is 400 kids every period. And I know these tardies are not accounted for. Mm-hmm. So I'll just have them throw out these, their assumptions, but they believe them to be true. Right. And then we will sit and systematically break everyone down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's been really powerful to work with individuals or staffs or, or just to think, what what do you believe to be true? And when we start looking at those numbers in reverse, what we can see is what we're doing is actually working pretty well. Right. Uh, there are a lot of our kids that do the right thing exactly. m- more often than not. Mm-hmm. And the few of our kids that aren't, yeah, they're, they're accounting for a lot of our time. But guess what? This is where we're going to focus on our resources mm-hmm. to try to make this a better environment for them and for you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of power in having those data conversations and using it to prove and disprove assumptions and, and for those celebrations, I think, are really important. Definitely. I, I can't agree more. I think presenting it that way and, and knowing that that is the case for a lot of our schools, I think that 
validates the need for PBIS and VTSS. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, you know, confirms that for a lot of our schools, our tier one interventions are working. Sure. But what about our students who aren't responding to uh, to those tier one interventions? And what are we doing to support those students, which is why I'm super excited about our piloting of VTSS in Chesterfield, because we're addressing all of those areas of deficiency that that students may have. At my current school this year, we started our student support team, where we were looking at those students, looking at our high flyers, um, pulling in our school social worker, our school psychologist, our Mm -hmm. counselors, our um, success teachers, kind of like an in-house alternative ed support piece that we have, and really having conversations about students. Well, what do you know about this student? What traumatic events have happened in their lives? Are there medical issues that we need to take into account as well? And really building customized intervention plans for those students that are not responding to our school-wide common language and, and expectations that come with those tier one pieces. Again, the data can validate that, yeah, a lot of our kids are, are doing what they're supposed to do, but there are some who need additional support. And then uh, trying to bring everybody to the table to determine what those supports need to be to see some some change in, in student behavior. Well, I love that you guys are doing so much. I, I will share with you, I did a PD, it's been a couple of years ago now, but I was trying to explain the difference between equity and equality as it relates to discipline. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, understanding the kid, understanding the why, I really was asking folks to start focusing on what drove this behavior. And yeah, maybe there's a consequence for, for what happened, but is there something we can put in place to be more preventative, mm-hmm. more proactive than reactive? Exactly. If so, understanding that consequence, I think, goes a long way mm-hmm. in reducing those repeat behaviors. Mm-hmm. You've both already started alluding to some of the practical ways that this can look in schools. Um, We have a number of recommendations that came out of this study because we want to make sure that we're offering something that's practical and actionable at the school and division Mm -hmm. level. So, Ashley, why don't you give us an overview of what are some of the the key takeaways and recommendations from phase one? Right, right. Yeah. So, like I mentioned earlier, we found that that black-white discipline gap is pretty persistent across the region. And We've touched on how uncomfortable these conversations can be, but what we really want to push and recommend is that stakeholders press into like race-conscious policy changes to address these issues. So we need to stop shying away from these conversations about race because of discomfort and really press into them um, thinking about what are these policy changes with race as the center of the focus that need to be made. Secondly, we I mentioned that those subjective infractions um, were related to particularly harsh disparities. Um, And so there has been some current steps by Virginia State Legislature to eliminate criminal misdemeanor charges for disorderly conduct. We think that schools and specifically like division level administration should build upon that and consider limiting the option for suspending students for those decode violations that are so subjective in nature. And what would it look like to kind of tweak that policy a little bit and consider not having that be an option quite as often as it is. We also mentioned that exclusionary discipline is more severe for secondary schools than it is in elementary schools. And so there has recently been the state recommendation to kind of separate the consequences Mm -hmm. for older and younger children. And we think that's a good step, but it's not going to necessarily lead to a reduction in this discrepancy. 
So we think um, that it's still necessary to include kind of distinguishable differences between what would be considered a minor infraction versus a major infraction, and including that specifically in codes of conduct. So it is written out, so it is clear, and it is um, widely disseminated to all the stakeholders, right? We want that to be really clear to parents. We want it to be really clear to teachers, to students, to anyone who is um, having any part in what this discipline looks like. And then again, thinking about what are ways that we can constrain that subjective the use of those subjective infractions and how that might play into really limiting these disparities in secondary school. So I also mentioned that we see that racial disproportionality is present in the majority of our communities. And so we do need these kind of wraparound supports everywhere, but specifically targeting these racially segregated schools, as well as these higher these schools in higher poverty areas or our higher poverty schools. So thinking about how policymakers can target these critical resources. So thinking about social services, counselors, wraparound services, what does it look like to really support these schools and communities? And then thinking really critically about how we can ameliorate segregation where it's possible. And so is that through student assignment? Is it through rezoning attendance boundaries? That seems to be a really sticky point here in Richmond. And so we would push policymakers to think really critically about that. And then lastly, I'll say, so we t- we've been talking a lot about PBIS and VTSS and that being kind of the most commonly reported intervention that's at use. And so we think that it's really important to provide the resources and the training for that, um, given that it's so popular here, but also to ensure that race is a part of those conversations. So what does it look like to not just talk about PBIS, but to ra- bring the race conversation into it? I'll say that there are many, many more recommendations, but those are just kind of a couple that I think would be important to highlight from this first quantitative phase. Yeah, and I think the phase two recommendations really build off of what you were talking about, Ashley. So one of our conclusions from the phase two findings was that there there seemed to be inconsistent communication about discipline programs in some of our schools, um, which tended to uh, lead to a lack of clarity about the intent and implementation for those programs. We advocate that it's really important for administrators to be well informed about the theory of change for the discipline programs that they're asked to lead in their schools and that there's sufficient training and professional development allocated for communicating this with the faculty. And we definitely recognize that this is something that could be more resource intensive for our smaller school divisions. Um, So it should be taken into consideration when allocating state funds like VTSS grant funds, for example. That's one of those findings that are recommendations that came out from our conversations with our study team. Another conclusion, implementation of discipline was inconsistent. That's not a very surprising conclusion from the study, but our recommendation here isn't about ensuring fidelity, uh, but about promoting conversations within a school about what degree of consistency is appropriate, um, including tailored professional professional development that acknowledges the unique context of each individual school, and to revisit codes of conduct with input from students, faculty, and the community. Marcy was just talking about Mm -hmm. the importance of understanding that you're serving a community. Um, This could potentially lead to a code that's more contextually appropriate for each school division and elicit greater buy-in from staff and students. Another conclusion, some teachers seem to have misconceptions about lenient discipline practices, um, including those for students with disabilities. It's important to to ensure that there's appropriate training related to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, as well as the manifestation determination review process that Brian was just talking about. Another conclusion, educator perceptions of disproportionality tended to be based on data and school composition, 
Um, I think we've really emphasized that during this conversation. It seems critical to share data, discipline data with faculty in each school, broken down specifically by racial groups. It sounds like we can um, uh, even disaggregate it even further to understand when the referrals are happening during the school day to really target mm -hmm. it and understand what's going on. This affords a baseline for understanding um, where the numbers are and what a school can do about it. Um, it also merits discussion about how racial disparities in discipline can exist in schools where the student body is not particularly diverse, that this can persist across contexts, which is what our phase one findings really reinforced. This report, we really believe, can help with those conversations. The phase one findings gives you the data. The phase two findings shows how people are wrestling with this that people can relate to and it could be transferable. Another conclusion, this is sort of a broader one, that attributions for racial disproportionality and discipline were external and internal to the control of the school. We have a number of separate conclusions and recommendations related to this in the report. A key recommendation here is that it's important to have honest conversations about the factors that contribute to discipline disparities in schools. Um, and that we're mindful of the context of each school whenever we're having those conversations. Um, and as much as possible, it's really critical to focus on internal factors that a school can control. Because uh, we, if we focus excessively on external factors like poverty and perceived home expectations, it might do very little to actually move the needle on this issue that we need to improve upon. Um, and it may even contribute to lower expectations for student behavior. The research supports that. And I think as this report has really shown, there are several factors within our control for addressing racial disparities in discipline. Um, that includes professional development, training, recruiting, hiring, and retaining teachers of color, um, and explicitly addressing issues related to race in our conversations about school discipline, and then advocating for policies that might reduce the use of exclusionary discipline um, for minor subjective infractions. When you're looking through this report and you look at the recommendation section, we break it down by stakeholder group too. And so we have everything from um, students to teachers, administrators, uh, division leaders, state and federal policymakers, and university schools of education, because we believe that there's accountability related to this issue at all levels. And we, so we want to make sure that we're communicating this in a way that um, everybody can be at the table to try mm -hmm. to contribute in some way. So considering all that we just talked about, I'm wondering, what are your biggest takeaways from this study overall, and what do you hope its impact is going to be on schools and divisions in metropolitan Richmond? Well, I'll share uh, a piece of news that you're probably well aware of, but there's a state committee, uh, the Virginia Student VSSCC, Student Support and Conduct Committee, that is actually, I'm a part of it surprisingly, uh, has worked on uh, a new code of conduct that's been approved by the state at this point that really takes a different look at how it's organized, how it'll be applied. So the state will be making recommendations. I think it'll be out, it's out there for the world to see now, but it'll be more public uh, very soon that will really take a look at how we create our codes of conducts mm -hmm. and the application thereof. So, so that's an exciting piece. They're also, uh, and a big piece that I can take away from this as well, really pushing alternatives to suspension. What else can we do to keep kids in school, to have better student outcomes, to help with the learning process? When I look at this study, a few things really stand out to me, just sort of the overall takeaways is one, I've always had that conversation that regardless of what you think the socioeconomics are in your school, what you think the, the area you live in, uh, the support you have, there are still kids within your school that are struggling. It might be more in a different population, but there's always kids. To look broader than that, Every school or every county, uh, every locality was affected by the study. Like we could see that 
there's disproportionality everywhere. So mm-hmm. as I speak to the, the schools and as they break it down to with individual kids within our counties, none of us are immune. We, we are all disproportionate. So I think it's really important that we continue the conversation, continue to have it honestly by showing that data, by pushing those difficult conversations. I think that we really have to look at our professional development. You know, again, that was sort of loud and clear is what we're offering, why we're offering it, how we're offering it, what's the follow through. So it's not this one and done, but this sustained and continued. This is how we look at it. We're going to continue these conversations. We're going to maybe reapproach how we look at it based on the findings. I think there's there's a lot to, to pull from here. I will say there's a, a phrase that I really love, too, that it's uh, about students. And it's uh, never about us without us. So continuing that dialogue with students present so that they can give us not only their just just their feel but their understanding and and help with the problem solving too Mm -hmm. which i think again is loud and clear from those kids i think we really need to figure out how to normalize some things because there are huge disparities Uh, and i'll tell you one of the other big takeaways for me is the continued need for regional cooperation Mm -hmm. Uh, and collaboration that I I can appreciate being a part of this team personally and having the ability to work with you guys and and have those conversations. But beyond the scope of this study, I think there's a real opportunity for us to do collective professional development, to talk about what we look like as a region and how Mm -hmm. we can address it collectively. And I think that would be fantastic if we were able to to put that together. Yeah, let's build off of the momentum. Absolutely. For sure. Mm -hmm. Marcy, what do you think? Again, I think Brian made some great points. I think the regional collaboration piece is important because we see that our students, especially those that are in poverty, do move around Mm -hmm. our region. And so we are serving the same students. We're serving Mm -hmm. the same families. And so I think, you know, that would allow us to work smarter and and not harder and and not to work in in silos in terms of how we support students. Um, Professional development definitely, I think, is major. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be frequent, not just as it pertains to discipline practices um, and alternative approaches, but also it makes me think about our new teachers who are new to the teaching profession. How are we supporting them, those that are new to our region? How are we educating them about our students and, and our approach to instruction and our approach to discipline? Another area that I think should be explored is, is recruitment. Um, how are we going about recruiting our teachers? Um, the data showed that our black students who were in non-diverse high schools are being suspended at an, at an even higher rate. So what, what is the root cause there? Is it that their teacher demographic doesn't mirror our student demographic? Could it, put, put it, could it perhaps be a lack of student engagement? Is there an opportunity to look at instruction in, in those schools? So I think, again, recruitment, professional development, and then again, also exploring our, the correlation between our discipline outcomes and student engagement. I think those are some, some untapped areas that we can definitely explore. Yeah. I think you made a great point a mm-hmm. second ago, which is a great way to help control the level of discipline mm-hmm. is good instruction. Exactly. Right. So if we can create engaging lessons, and mm-hmm. I think that has to be a big part of our PD. It's just mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. talking about discipline. But is how do we create a more engaging environment that kids Definitely. want to be in mm-hmm. that will control our attendance, that will control our discipline, that will control so much. And not only that, just teacher happiness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if we can figure out a way to improve that, mm-hmm. I think that will go a long way to, to everything that we're talking about here. Yeah. So that's an excellent point. Definitely. And there's a lot of teachers that were in the study that advocated exactly that same point. Too. Yeah, and there's, it's clear that there's a lot that we could do to move the needle on this issue. Um, but we're going to have to leave that there for now. But if you want to learn more about this study, we hope that you'll check out the full report, 
which is now available to download from our website at merc.soe.vcu.edu slash reports. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash reports. Um, you could also check out our webpage for this study that includes links to other podcast episodes, reports, and details about our approach to the research. Um, if you enjoyed what you heard today, we hope that you will share this episode with anyone you believe could benefit from joining our discussion. We're eager to bring them to the table with us. You can access Abstract on the Merck website, as well as on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, we hope you will subscribe and leave some feedback on any of these platforms. You can also keep up to date on all Merck projects by signing up for our email listserv on our website and by following us on Twitter and Facebook. Our thanks, as always, to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck. To Jesse Seneschal for his fearless direction, to Genevieve Siegel-Holly and Ade Tafera for your wisdom and dedication to this research, to Kyle Rudd for our theme music, to Tracy Knapp for our logo design, and to all of our partnering school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan, and Richmond. Um, our thanks today to Marcy Terry, uh, Brian Malpe, and Ashley Lester for your service to this research and study team over the past few years and for helping us to explore the findings and implications today. Um, we especially want to thank all the educators and leaders in our school divisions who contributed to this study, either by selecting it as a topic of importance, giving feedback um, on our approach and findings, or providing the stories and data that we needed to effectively explore this complicated and critical issue. We are so grateful for your ongoing partnership in positively impacting the outcomes of students and educators in metropolitan Richmond. Um, and of course, thanks to you for joining our conversation today. We hope that we will continue to explore equitable and innovative ways to approach school discipline. My name is David Naff, and this has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues in public education. Let's talk again soon.